Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is historian, broadcaster, and chief curator at the Royal Palaces, Lucy Worsley. Those who have a curiosity to see courts and courtiers dissected must bear with the dirt they find. So runs the epigraph to Lucy's book, and those words were written by John Harvey, an insider in the Hanoverian court, which is the subject of her book. Lucy takes as her starting point the King's Grand Staircase in Kensington Palace, whose walls are decorated with painted portraits of 45 royal servants from the 1720s, and she investigates court life above and below stairs, including the dirt, the scandals, the mistresses, the intrigue. He that holds a courtier by the hand, one commentator noted, has a wet eel by the tail. I began by asking Lucy about the inspiration to explore these Georgian lives provided by those portraits on the staircase. When I started working here at Kensington Palace, I would often find myself going up and down this enormous grand staircase in the building called the King's Grand Staircase. And it's a remarkable thing, really, because it's decorated with 45 portraits of different members of the royal household. I believe that they're all real people who lived and worked here at Kensington Palace for George I. But nobody knew who they all were. There were lots of rumours, there were lots of myths. People would say, oh yes, that's George I's mistress and so on. But I decided one afternoon to sit down and try and work it out from all the different sources that are available for this. And it ended up taking not one afternoon, but four years. And the, the book is, is one of the results. Yes, exactly. Um, as a result of this sort of little bright idea I had one afternoon, I ended up writing a whole book about life at the Georgian court, particularly concentrating on the people below stairs who really knew what was going on. They are, you know, the people, the servants in any institution, the people who are standing watching in the corner, they often have a really unique in- insight into what the great and the good are doing sort of up there in the stratosphere. So that's what drew me to the, the portraits on the stairs, really, the idea that they were people who were witnesses. They were witnesses to the kings and the queens and the goings-on in the Georgian family in the early Georgian period are just amazing. There are babies kidnapped, there are tearful deathbed reconciliations, there's all sorts of drama going on in the royal family that people don't know about because they think that George I, George II are boring and dull and German. So I've tried to do my bit to make people realise just what fascinating characters they are, really. But getting at those lives below stairs is is notoriously difficult, isn't it? I mean, they are the lives that are partly hidden. So how did you how did you get some purchase on them? Yeah, there's a very good point. And a lot of the people who lived at court below stairs, we just don't know that much about them because the, the records don't survive. So um, I had to pick a selection of characters from both above and below stairs to, to write about. So um, I have included Queen Caroline, for example, who I just think is the most underestimated queen in the whole British history. She was very fat, she was very funny, she was a German immigrant, she was interested in philosophy. Uh, She wasn't cut out to be a sort of um, sedate princess sitting in the drawing room being nice to everybody. She found this rather boring. And one of the things that have shaped my views of Caroline are the views of her own favourite servants. In particular, one of my characters is uh, George Harvey, the vice chamberlain of the court, who has many vices of his own, not least his sodomy. He was clearly bisexual. He worshipped Caroline. They had an incredibly close relationship. And he was sort of like her gay best friend. They used to spend every morning together and he would entertain her with witty and scholarly conversation. And when she died, he was absolutely heartbroken by it. And as as was her equerry, Peter Wentworth, another character from below stairs. So part of the reason that I admire her so much is because the people who worked for her really were devoted to her. You open your story on an April night in 1720, which seemed to be a really good place to start because it kind of summed up a lot of what 
what the problem was really at court with the relationship between George the First and the Prince of Wales. Can you say something about about what that what that state of play was on that night? Oh yes, well I I sort of start at a point when <laughs> there's about to be a, a very rare moment of reconciliation between George the First and George the Second because they hate each other, and this is the key thing about the George the the fathers all hate the sons. George the First hates George the Second. Later on, George the Third hates George the Fourth, and the reasons for this are just really intriguing. Um, I think they're partly to do with emotional stuff, psychological stuff. There's the peculiar business of the missing queen. George the First wife is nowhere to be seen in 1717. Where is she? In fact, she has been locked up in a remote German castle for adultery. <laughs> because in the 1690s, this is George the Second's mother, uh, she embarked on a very flagrant adulterous relationship with a Swede called Count Konigsmark. And rumour has it that one day he was making his way through the palace corridors to her room when he was set upon by an assassin employed by George I and his body was thrown into the river liner in central Hanover. And after that, she disappeared off the scene and her 11-year-old son, George II, never saw her again, never mentioned her again as far as we know. And I think that her absence caused a dark cloud to sort of settle onto the father-son relationship, which they were unable to discuss or disperse. But also another reason that set them at loggerheads was politics, because in 1714, what happened was that um, Queen Anne died without any surviving children. And this is despite her attempt to squeeze out an heir to a throne during 17 pregnancies. Ouch, only one child lived to the age of 11 and didn't out of her. So she died, that's the end of the Stuarts. The only Stuarts left are Catholic exiled Stuarts who the Whig Protestant aristocracy don't want. They don't want the Catholic branch of the Stuarts. So they look back up the Stuart family tree, back and back and back, and they find George, um, Charles I's sister had re reproduced and um, produced the Protestant electors of Dinky Little Hanover. So they get invited, they invite the Hanoverians to become the kings of England. But invited is the key word because this invitation comes with um, limits. They're going to be constitutional monarchs. They don't have absolute power. And the Whig aristocrats and the parliament and the politicians impose restrictions on what they can and can't do. So they can't give peerages to Germans. They can't leave the country without permission, that sort of thing. And so the Hanoverians realise that they can be sacked at any time, basically. And this is quite difficult for them to negotiate. And the other thing that the politicians do to further diminish the power of the royal family is divide and rule. And so what they do if you're a politician is you suck up to the king, but if you can't get anywhere, then you try the Prince of Wales instead, because he one day will be king. And this is called the reversionary interest, because what you want is the reversion of the post. And this applies to all kinds of posts at court, not, not just the post of being king. Anybody might um, put themselves in line to get a post that will open up at a future point, and it's called the reversionary interest. And this is something that causes immense trouble between the different generations of the royal family, because the politicians are stirring it up. So what happens in 1717 is that finally all hell breaks loose because of this ridiculous, tiny, ludicrous little quarrel that takes place over the German inability to speak English properly. There's a, a quarrel that happens um, between the future George II and the Duke of Newcastle. George II says to the Duke of Newcastle, you rascal, I will find you. And he wanted to find him to give him a piece of his mind. He felt that he'd behaved badly. He wanted to have a row. But what the Duke of Newcastle heard was, you rascal, I will fight you. And this is the German accent of George II being not understood. And the Duke of Newcastle was affronted. He said, I've been 
I've been challenged to a duel. This is a terrible breach of etiquette. And he went running off to George I and he said, mm, your son challenged me to a duel. George I took the side of the Duke of Newcastle and he expelled the prince from the royal palace. Not only did he expel the Prince of Wales, he also expelled his wife, the lovely um, Caroline, and even worse, he kept their children behind as hostages for future good behaviour. So it's an emotion, it's a personal tragedy for Princess Caroline, really, to have her children taken from her, and it's a political calamity as well because now the king and the prince are not on speaking terms and so what happens in in the opening part of the courtiers is that we pick up the story and caroline and her husband the future george ii have to grit their teeth and they're going to go to court they're going to put a brave face on it they're going to try and make up this quarrel that they've had with the king but it's not really well i'm giving away what happens here it's not really going to work they're going to die still still estranged to sort of put it in modern parlance, the Hanoverians have got a bit of a, a PR challenge on their hands, haven't they? That, as you say, this sort of minor league German ro- royalty who are suddenly cast into the limelight running England. And they don't speak English. They've got these funny German ways. They're hankering after long holidays in Germany. How did they attempt to adapt to this new challenge that was before them? <laughs> yes, part of the reason that the Hanoverians have always had a dreadful press was that they weren't entirely welcome. There were always English people who felt that the Stuart, Catholic Stuarts, would have been a better bet. Who are these people? What are they doing here? They, they appeared to be very foreign. Actually, if you think about it, they did a very good job, the Hanoverians did. They got us through from 1714 into the 19th century, through the Industrial Revolution, through all the colonies and the empires and everything. Without the French Revolution, there was no bloodbath, there was no classicalism, the closest there was was the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745. They actually did a reasonable job, and yet people have just forgotten about them. And that's always because I think the English have tried to minimise their input, they've laughed at them, they've said that they were German and weird and not worth taking seriously. So you can see the sort of problem that the Hanoverians faced. They had to win over a whole new country which didn't really want them to be there. And to be honest, they made many mistakes along the way. They had too many Germans at court who formed sort of inner clique and this upset the English courtiers who were sort of outside the clique. But to give further credit for it, it was Princess Caroline, in particular the future Queen Caroline, who understood PR, best of the whole of the new royal family. And she was warm and welcoming almost to a fault. She stood there night after night in the drawing room, welcoming the English courtiers and smoothing them and sort of fluffing them and encouraging them to to take the Hanoverian dynasty seriously. And she deserves enormous credit for that particularly because she would have preferred to be doing something rather more serious with her time. She would have been preferred to have been reading her books or studying or talking about philosophy. But she sacrificed herself, really, to these very turgid social occasions, which were all about winning over power for her husband's dynasty. And in spite of that, the the press was quite savage. I was quite shocked by some of the things that that you quoted. You know, she was described as... um, the king's fat-assed wife uh, in one, I don't know if it was a, in a, a ballad or a, a song or a, in, mm. in print. Yes, you call it a, a vigorous and apparently unchecked popular press. Yes, um, Caroline was a, a target for all kinds of uh, criticism, partly because of her socially inappropriate interest in philosophy, partly because of her um, large size. She was a very fat lady. In fact, her bosom was so famously enormous that some people who came to court were actually disappointed when they saw it. They said, I thought she was going to be bigger than that from all the from all the rumours. So yes, they did call her the king's great fat arsed wife and that sort of thing. You're surprised by that, but a lot of people are because they think that the Georgian age was all about teacups mm. and tea parties and people perched on the edge of their seats being polite to each other. No, it's a rowdy, bawdy age, the 18th century. That's what's great about it, I think. People are rude and scurrilous and they say what they mean. 
all these pamphleteers in London, they were just going going wild to, to say crazier and crazier things about about the royal family. There was um, a great tradition of writing out these uh, jokey, rude verses and pinning them up on the palace gate, for example, to give the king a lesson, just to remind him that he's not an absolute monarch. And there are other, other amazing things you um, cited, for example, when there was popular unhappiness at George II's treatment of Caroline. People clambered over the wall into the garden to present a petition. That seemed that seems sort of <laughs> democracy in action. <laughs> yes, the, the Georgian kings are pretty accessible, really, when you think about it. We're here at Kensington Palace today, and it was just out there in the gardens that George and Caroline would take their walks. People would climb into the gardens giving petitions. Or one case, he was attacked by a transvestite who stole the buckles off his shoes. Other times, when he was at Hampton Court, the watermen going down the Thames would yell things at him, and he would shake his stick at them, which is just a brilliant sort of symbol of his impact. He's shaking his stick at the men on the barges who are shouting rude things at him. He's the king! He shouldn't have to do that. But he, he's kind of, you know, in this constitutional limited position and that's the best that that's the best that he can do. And the other thing is that if you were going to go to a drawing room, and this is the sort of set piece of court life. It's a party that takes place in the evening, hosted by the woman of the court, Princess Caroline, Queen Caroline, and um, anybody could get into a drawing room. Anybody could if they were well enough dressed. There wasn't a sort of rule about it. So you hear about people borrowing clothes from their grander relations and making a go. They see if they can sneak in. And ambassadors and peers from the country, the sort of colonel of the courtiers were known to the chamberlain or whoever it was, but other people could find themselves face to face with royalty. This is the key job of the royal family, I suppose, to meet with to get face time with their major supporters in the aristocracy. That's what court life is is all about from their point of view. From the point of view of people attending the drawing room, the ones who want a favour or a promotion or a sinecure or some sort of pension or income, they're all there with their elbows out, bumping into all their all of their rivals and opponents, trying to get that, that moment with the king to ask for their particular favour, to drop it into the royal ear. And that's partly also explains why the servants, the people below stairs, are so influential, because some of the characters like um, Mohammed or Mustafa, who were George the first confidential Turkish valets, they dress the king in the morning. Uh, Mohammed treats his hemorrhoids. Mustafa administers his laxatives. They're very close to the king. They have his ear. And that's why, even though they have very low official status, they have high unofficial status. And people are always sucking up to them. If you want a favour, then ask Mohammed. Give Mohammed a nice present. He might be able to get you what you want. You refer to the early 18th century as the last great gasp of court life. And I suppose, like the end phase of many things, it was it was becoming sort of hidebound and, and rather stultifying. So the forms were all still there but they were becoming more and more empty forms, I suppose. You've got to pity court historians, really, because their institution that they study is basically in decline from Henry VIII to Queen Victoria. <laughs> it kind of goes down and down and down in importance with sort of little jiggles, like George II revives the whole institution a little bit, but basically it's on its way down. And by the 18th century, there are other spheres of influence. There's the parliament, there's the city. People aren't exclusively seeking power at court. There are other arenas for politics to be played out with, but they still do come. They're still worth doing. So Robert Walpole, the Prime Minister, he spends an awful lot of time at court cultivating the ear of the of the King and the Queen. He knew that Caroline was very influential politically with, with George II, so it does still matter at this time. But you're right, it is sort of becoming slowly ossified. And by the after Queen Caroline's death, 
1737. She was the kind of motor that kept the court's social life going. After her death, George II didn't host parties in the same way, and he became notably reclusive. And everybody began to sort of think that he'd he sort of vanished, really. He wasn't holding parties. He wasn't entertaining people at court. This sort of drew mixed reactions because some people thought the king's not doing his job. He's not, he should be. He should be having a glittering, sparkling Louis XIV type monarchy for the nation. But other people, and this is very British, other people were thinking, hmm, we quite like having a low-key king like this. He's obviously not wasting our money too much. We, we, we don't mind having sort of workman-like king who sits in his palace and doesn't see many people. Now tell me what court life was like specifically for women. You describe them at the beginning of the book as trussed up. Hmm. and coloured. And I suppose that's that's not just in a literal sense, that's sort of also a metaphorical kind of containment of their freedom of movement. Yes, if you were a female courtier, you had to wear the court uniform, which is a dress called a mantua. Now, this is one of those dresses that's enormously wide. It's worn over a hooped whalebone cage, and it goes out and out and out to the sides. Not forwards and backwards, that's Victorian, the circular dress, the crinoline is Victorian, but it, it goes out um, to each side of you. So you can't walk through a doorway unless it's a palace doorway, otherwise you have to sort of turn and go through sideways. And these dresses were enormously heavy. I've worn one, it really is exhausting. First of all, you put on your ship, then your stays, then this big sort of cage of whalebone goes over you, that weighs about 10 pounds. Then you put your dress on and that weighs another 10 pounds because the dresses are woven really richly with, with metallic threads. The sort of the quality of the dresses not lies not in the cut but in the material itself. It's very very richly woven, and sometimes when a mantua is no longer wanted for use, they would melt it down so they could reuse the silver again afterwards. You, with the mantua, you had to wear your your ruffles, your lace ruffles at the sleeves. Your forearms were exposed, and the way that you position them and hold your fan that's all dreadfully important. There's a big erogenous zone. The um the forearm is, and it has to be displayed to advantage. And there are books that tell you how to do this. Then you also have to stand correctly. If you're at court, you must never ever cross your arms. This is a crime. Your dancing master will train you in this before you turn up. When you're in the presence of the king or queen, you never sit. If you want to leave the presence, you have to curtsy three times. Well, first you have to ask for permission, then you curtsy three times and you back out of the room. Now, people who see the mantras that we've got on display here at Kensington Palace, they always ask, how did they go to the loo? Because in, in such an enormous skirt, you, it's kind of hard to imagine. There is a sneaky answer to this. Firstly, they weren't wearing underpants or knickers. These haven't been invented yet. They're a, they're a 19th century thing. And secondly, they had these kind of devices called a bordeloo, which looks like a gravy boat. So what the ladies would do is just slip it up their skirts and nobody knew what they were up to. You were supposed to retire to the ante room to do this. Didn't always happen. There are accounts of the French ambassador's wife just going to the loo in front of everybody and not minding about it. But officially, you're supposed to leave the drawing room, go to the ante room. But you had to ask permission to do this. And once one of Queen Caroline's ladies didn't get permission to go, she was defeated by a bursting bladder. And a humiliating pool of urine crept out from under her skirts. And this is the contemporary quotation, it threatened the shoes of bystanders. <laughs> it just shows you what a strange world it was at court where people had to follow the rules to such an extent that they got confronted with total humiliation and pain. And if you were a, if you were a man, having a mistress was was de rigueur, really. And if you're a woman, it was a dangerous thing, wasn't it? To um, it was it was a much more risky venture to be involved in adultery. The, the position of mistress at 
the Georgian court is ambivalent, really. Firstly, it's well established and accepted. When George II gets his long-time mistress, Henrietta Howard, everyone's quite pleased. They say, oh, good, he's got an English mistress. At least she will improve his English language skills. But Henrietta found the position degrading and arduous. She wasn't happy. She didn't like it. She didn't relish it. Unlike some other women who were in the position of mistress, she didn't really use it to get wealth and influences. She wasn't flogging peerages like some of them did. And the reason that she stuck with it was because she was married to a violent alcoholic man, Charles Howard, at court. And at court alone, she was protected from him by the palace walls. So that's why she stuck with it for such a long time. But in some ways, she was atypical of a royal mistress because she had so little sort of zoom and panache about her. Some of the other ones were were much more feisty. And you mustn't think of them just as sexual playthings. That's a misconception. They were there to entertain and to give advice, actually. I mean, Charles II, people say, the Merry Monarch, famous for having the 13 mistresses or whatever it was. Surely that's a misogynist thing to do. Actually, no, he took women seriously and he liked to chat with them and to get their views on things, quite unlike contemporaries who maybe remained more faithful to their wives, but treated them as animals. And yet, despite all this, there's something actually quite touching by the end about the the marriage of George II and Caroline, isn't it? It survives through all sorts of vicissitudes, and towards the end, there are actual signs of deep affection on both sides. Oh, George II and Caroline, it's such a romantic story. It's just heartbreaking. George II had had his mistress Henrietta for more than 20 years, and Caroline always pretended not to mind about this. She put it about that she minded the king's infidelity no more than his going to the closed stool, for example, going to the toilet. It's just something that princes did. But she actually loved him, really, much more than he deserved, in my opinion. And later on in his life, when she fell ill in 1737, she got this terrible illness, he realised the value of the woman who'd been by his side all along, and he devoted himself to her care. Now, if you read their early love letters from their, from their courtship, he was passionate about her. He said that he would throw himself at his princess's feet. He was a great writer of love letters, was George II. The time as king blunted, bored, annoyed him. He, he, he couldn't keep up this level of devotion to his wife. But when it really matters, he came back to her and was with her during her horrific illness, which lasted for 10 days. What had happened to her was that she'd given birth eight times. She'd always had difficulties in delivery. And these can't have been made any easier by the need to have in the room with her, her husband, the king, the Archbishop of Canterbury and 18 other people. But after delivery number eight, her daughter, Louisa, she suffered from an umbilical hernia. And this means that a hole had opened up in the wall of her stomach and a little loop of her bowels or intestine had popped out through the hole. And in 1737, this had become diseased and infected and she just collapsed to the floor. And she finally had to admit that something was wrong with her because before, out of modesty, she'd kept this secret. So the doctors were called in, the king was called in, and the doctors decided to operate. Now, what they should have done was to push that loop of bowel or intestine back inside through the hole and sew it up. That's what they would do today. But what they did instead was to cut it off. Dr. John Ranby, 
her doctor cut off that bowel and in doing that he destroyed her digestive system then every day for the next 10 days he trimmed off a little bit more because it went mortified it, it achieved mortification as they said and throughout all of this Caroline kept up her spirits amazingly her only concern was for the grief of her husband and her children and when Dr Randy came in for the daily operation she would joke with him um, once his wig caught fire as he was leaning over and operating on her in the dark room and they had to stop while she laughed and every morning she'd say to him just pretend you're cutting up your ex-wife that'll make you feel better about what you're having to do to me but the king george ii was with her throughout and finally after 10 days her stomach sort of exploded and all of the contents of it ran it soaked through the quilts of the bed we're told it's just horrific end really finally um caroline begged her husband to marry again after her death she was that selfless but he said no i will take meaningless mistresses as i've had before but i will never take a second queen you're the only queen for me and when she finally passed away in the dark it was holding his hand and everybody admired Caroline for the bravery with which that she'd, she'd faced her, her horrific death. George II stood by her quite remarkably well, considering what a nasty old man he really was for much of the time. And after she died, it was really like a light went out. I mean, lights did literally go out. And then, metaphorically, it was, the life seemed to go out of the court, didn't it? Yes, you're right. Once, once Caroline had died, so many of her servants were destroyed by the event. Peter Wentworth, for example, who'd been her equerry, only she had stopped him from um, becoming an alcoholic. He always struggled with, with drinking. He was terribly shy. She shattered his shyness, but after her death, he couldn't go on. He died of, he died of alcoholism. And, and many of the other of her servants were, were devastated by her loss, as was the king. And he sort of retired from social life. Then the palace was closed up. In fact, her room was left untouched 20 years later. You could still see the wood that had been laid on that final morning on her fireplace. The sparkle went out of things. Although he soldiered on for another 23 years as king, it was kind of the end of the high life at Kensington Palace. And there's this great description by Horace Walpole of right late in the reign of George II. And he describes how the aged courtiers are like flies, dead flies, sunning themselves on a windowsill just ready to be swept away by the wind of the new rain, which everybody knows is coming. I wondered if it made a difference to you writing this book, being in the place where many of the events happened. Did you imbibe any of the, of the atmosphere or did it enable you to imagine it, imagine it differently because you daily walk the same corridors that they walked? Yes, very much so. I couldn't have written this in this same way, without having been here at Kensington Palace. And if, if I ever get a sort of quiet moment in my day, then I'm off down to the King's Grand Staircase and I just look at it. Because every time when I look at it, I always discover something new. I remember this great day when I noticed that all the sight lines converge in one particular spot on the landing. And I started doing some research to find out whose door it was that was just behind there, for example. Oh, and I remember the day when I noticed that the Mohammed's arm, you can just see his fingers coming around the shoulder of the lady next to him. So I started to think that maybe she was his wife, which I hadn't previously occurred to me. But they do have a real, he's got his arm right around her, right around her shoulders. And yes, definitely part of my reason for writing it was to share my affection for Kensington Palace and to make other people come and see it because it's a great place but not well known. A lot of people don't realise that it's open, that you can come and visit the State Apartments and see, see where all these people lived. Did you feel closer to the Georgians as a result of writing this? Did the process of researching this book kind of warm them up, humanise them, bring them to life in a way that they hadn't been for you beforehand? 
Yes, definitely. Everybody in this book, I think, suffered in one way or another. And people have this idea that life at court, life in a palace is, is wonderful and glamorous and sparkling and brilliant. And you see these little girls, they come around the palace, they're dressed up in their pink dresses, they're wearing their little tiaras. And you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, I want to be a princess. Oh, that's such a wrong thing to think. I mean, I think it's in many ways... The court is a gilded cage. The people caught in the cage, particularly the women, really suffer for it. They have a life that's superficially very luxurious and glamorous, but actually they lack a lot of freedom, ability to develop normal relationships. They really pay a high price for their high status. So I see them all as sort of victims of a machine. I feel a great sense of empathy and sympathy for all of these courtiers in my book. Lucy Wisely. Courtiers, The Secret History of Kensington Palace is out now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but you can find out more about the book by going to faber.co.uk. You can also listen to Lucy reading extracts from the book there. I hope you'll join me again soon for the next Faber podcast, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.